Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So let's begin. First of all, good morning. Uh, it's been so nice to sit and walk with you. Um, I hope that you feel that uh, the more you sit, even if uh, there's a lot of distraction, or even if your body is not used to the posture yet, uh, the more you sit, the more your attention just starts, <laughs> just starts settling. And you also might be aware that um, even if being around other people brings different issues up for you, uh, the power of a group of people sitting together um, is very precious. And uh, we're very lucky that we all have enough safety and uh, leisure time and health that we can all sit together uh, like this. Uh, there are so many uh, countries in the world where this group of people and these genders could not be sitting together. No way. So, uh, how lucky we are. So I thought, uh, because uh, many of you have learned a little bit about mindfulness, have learned some of the basics, like come back to your breathing, <laughs> no matter what, um, that today we can dive into some other kinds of teachings that are part of the context that some of the meditative practices many of you are familiar with come from. So we're in Tibet, uh, it's the 12th century. And what's happened over the last thousand years since the teachings of the Buddha have left India and migrated in men to many countries, but have migrated into Tibet, is that Mahayana practice, which I'm gonna talk about, is at its pinnacle or heading to its pinnacle. And this practice revolves around something called bodhicitta, which is that as you start to settle, as your attention starts to calm down, as you start to realize how many stupid things you do all the time, and how unskillful we are in, with our bodies and with how we speak and with how we use our minds, hopefully some of you are seeing this, we're humbled. And then, what got us into the door of practice was either just wanting to reduce stress or wanting to be enlightened. Or maybe both. Right? I want to be free. I want to be awake. And what gets developed after the Buddha's death is this practice that's focused on bodhicitta, 
which is no longer the aspiration for your own peace and your own healing and your own enlightenment, but a recognition that because we're all interconnected, we're all in this together. And bodhicitta is the beginning of a spark in our heart that when we practice, it's for everyone. It's for everybody. You come a day like today and you think, I just need to chill out. But then you go home and everyone around you is like, you should do this more often. (laughs) (laughs) The name of this text is called uh, Lojong. And probably the person in our culture who's made this most famous is Pema Chodron. If you've read any of her books, the background of all of her writing is this text. Um, The text is organized around seven main points. I've only copied four of them for you, which I don't know if we'll even get through. Um, And in those seven points, there are 59 different slogans. Um, I don't love the word slogan because of our advertising culture, so I think of them as bumper stickers. (laughs) And I think when the Enso Foundation does its next fundraising campaign, it can create 59 bumper stickers with all of these slogans. And it will be known around Canada that people have come through Kelowna because they'll have one of these bumper stickers. Like, don't blame others. And then underneath it'll be a Kelowna, BC. <laughs> yeah. And each bumper sticker will be $1,000. And then um, we'll develop a really good program here in Kelowna. Uh, the word lo uh, of lojong is always translated as mind. But I think it would be more accurate for our purposes and how we're approaching the text to think of it as attitude. Not so much like the mind as a thing or a chemical process or, you know, DNA turning on and off, but rather think of mind as an attitude of one's heart. The, the, The way your heart is oriented, like a compass, right? Imagine your heart is like a compass, and magnetic north is genuine compassion for all beings. Most of the time, that's not the direction we've been oriented to. And jong, lo jong, has two meanings. One means to cleanse or to purify. But then it has another connotation which is that if you cleanse and you purify your attitude, if you cleanse and purify your attitude, what happens? You start to cultivate more beneficial and benevolent attitudes. If you work a lot with your tendency towards greed, you will become a more generous person. If you work a lot with your temper, you will become a more peaceful person. When you work with your attitude, the beneficial attitudes that have been covered over were right there the whole time. And that's bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the beginning of faith or confidence or trust called shraddha. It's faith 
that underneath the afflictive emotions, we're good. And I'll say that if you philosophically don't believe in that idea, if you sit still for half an hour and you start to calm down, you feel like a better person, a better version of yourself. And if you sit every day and start to bring some of that non-reactive space into your day, you'll notice that you start responding to situations more skillfully and more creatively and less with the momentum of generations of habit that um, cause us to act unskillfully. So, bumper stickers. So I've handed out some of these bumper stickers. And point one is called Resolve to, the, to Begin. And there's one bumper sticker for this point, which is Train in the Preliminaries. Train in the preliminaries. So what are the preliminaries? Is It's the whole field of the mind and the body settling. And how do you settle mind and body? You need a little technique. It's like human beings are not really designed to be runners. We're designed to sprint quickly, to run away from something, and climb a tree or get across a river, but we're not designed for 12K races. <laughs> do you do that in Kelowna? <laughs> um, but um, if you learn some technique about how to stabilize your hips and how to have strong core muscles and how to have good breathing, you can start to train yourself uh, to run. So compassion is the same way, right? Maybe some of us feel we're naturally compassionate, but I think a lot of us, we need to train in it because we've forgotten. We've forgotten how to maintain a compassionate attitude. So train in the preliminaries, which basically is saying something kind of unusual. It's saying, whatever's in front of you right now, that's your training. In Pema Chodron's interpretation of this or commentary on this, she calls this, start where you are. And what's unusual about that, it's saying, whatever's happening in reality right now, that can train you. Normally, we call what arises right now an obstacle. <laughs> And this text is saying that what's happening right now is the raw material that can show us the path. So step number one is to find a compassionate and friendly attitude towards our woundedness. Because when you get close to your woundedness, it throws up signals that say, Get over this, transcend this, escape this, eat more. <laughs> Maybe the wounds are self-inflicted. Maybe the wounds are other-inflicted. Maybe it's a combination. But either way, training in the preliminaries means 
the basic stance of our practice is we can turn towards our woundedness. It's okay. We can turn towards our woundedness. And we can fully inhabit our lives and never give up on ourselves. So this could be another interpretation of the first bumper sticker. Never give up on yourself. Kelowna, BC. People's mouths are portable, violent megaphones. Sometimes they're yelling externally, like Donald Trump. And sometimes they're yelling internally, like you. But we need to watch what we broadcast. And that's the gateway towards compassion. It doesn't matter what brings you into the practice. If you have real suffering that brings you here, then that's the training that you're going to work with. If you're just curious and that's what brings you here, then that's what you're going to work with. But once you sit, you start to change. And you also start to see that everything's changing all the time also. You didn't see that before. You didn't see how everything's changing. I highly recommend a great text that I've been reading lately called The Gospel of Thomas. Has anybody read this? This is like the most Zen text. And uh, one of the lines in it says, first you must find it. When you find it, it troubles you. First you must find it. And when you find it, uh, it troubles you. Is the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible or is it different? Does anybody know what the answer? Someone just gave me the Gospel of Thomas. It's like a photocopied. So I actually don't know. Oh, okay. Um, first, we notice we have all these ingrained thoughts and how we organize our experience. That's what you're doing on your cushion. I say notice your breathing, but really you're noticing ingrained habit. First, we have to see that's a thing. And then we're troubled. <laughs> right? You come to a workshop like this. You sit, walk, sit, walk. You think it's going to be peaceful. But actually, you end up really troubled, which is what a mess. <laughs> what a mess. You see your thinking. Oh, that's inherited from my father. That's inherited from the 70s. That's inherited from being Canadian. You see these cultural, social, family patterns. And it troubles you. So you have to train in the preliminaries. And there are four suggestions for how to do this. The first is maintain an awareness of the preciousness of your human life. How many of us ever do this? 
Has anyone here ever been really sick? I mean, sick just like a flu or something. Mm -hmm. Like high fever. Has, have you, has anyone done this? Yeah, lately? <laughs> I've done it twice this winter. So, you know that feeling when it's gone and you walk outside again <laughs> for the first time? And it's like everything's so delightful and feels really precious. It's not the kind of precious when someone goes, oh, that's so precious. It's an embodied sense of delight. Maintain an awareness of the preciousness of our human life through the day. Number two, be aware of the reality that life ends for everybody. Be aware of the reality that we have an expiry date. That would be a good bumper sticker. <laughs> you and I have an expiry date. Honk, <laughs> if you believe in this. Number three, recall that whatever you do, whether it's virtuous or not, has a result. Whatever you do, everything that you do, did I talk about this last night? Whatever you do, it has an effect. And you know, you can't control the effect. But you can really control the intention in your actions. Sometimes we have an action that's not very dramatic, but the intention is really pure and it has a tremendous effect. You see someone having a hard time you smile at them. The attention, the intention's really pure, and the effect is much bigger than anything anybody has done for them for months. Just the way you smile at that person. <coughs> and the last suggestion for how to train in the preliminaries is to contemplate that as long as you're too focused on self-importance, and too caught up in thinking about how you're good or bad, you'll suffer. In other words, as long as you're so focused on the goodness or badness of yourself, you're going to suffer. I would translate that as just being obsessive creates suffering. So what does it mean to train in the preliminaries? What does it mean for something to be preliminary? It means that everything that's happened in your whole life up until right now is your training. That's your training. And the difference between, you know, suffering or just coping and training is your attitude. That's what this text is saying. If you have just coping as your main mechanism, that's not training your heart. It's just coping. When you start working the attitude of your own heart, we transform from just coping, 
just managing our resentment, just managing our anger, just managing our grief, to actually bringing it into the center and saying, this is the raw stuff that I'm going to practice with. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? Like, we have something really hard going on, and we find strategies to just keep it right over here. Right? And then we're just like, I'm getting on with my life, and I do a little work, but I'm mostly just kind of keeping it over here. And what this text is saying is, training in the basics means just changing your attitude to say, okay, it can be over here. It can be right here as the path that I'm walking on. So you start with your symptoms and you work inward. You don't start with your assumptions. You start with the actual symptoms of difficulty in your life. What are the symptoms? Being compulsive, being scared, uh, avoiding, dissociating, being overconfident. Right? These are all the symptoms of suffering. Irritability, aggravation, relationships that keep ending the same way. That's what we're training in. And that's point one. That's point one. I'd really like to cover point two, if I can, before lunch. But before I do, are there any questions about point one? Okay, if there are, just feel free to put up your hand as I'm, I'm speaking. Yeah. I have the question. Um, after meditating for a while, yeah. um, can a person come to a point where the stuff that comes up is more intense? Yes, that will happen. You can count on it. The question is, if you've been meditating for a while, is the stuff that comes up more intense? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I've been experiencing that and, and trying to put space for it. Mm -hmm. And the intensity has just deepened. Yeah. I'm still meditating. Yeah. I'm just trying to contain the space and make it okay. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be that um, when you treat something as a practice, mm -hmm. once you train enough and you get calm and peaceful enough, then there's something in us, I don't know the name of it, that realizes things are pretty peaceful right now. I am going to bring up a new layer of unconscious material. You know? okay. And relationships are like this too. I always notice this. Whenever things with my wife and I are really, really good, there's always like some intense thing that comes up. And I always think, oh God, things are so good. Like, why is this, you know? Well, it's coming up because the container's stronger. And so you can handle dealing yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, that has been something I've been wondering about. Yeah. Point two. 
The uh, umbrella description of this point is train in empathy and compassion, absolute compassion, absolute bodhicitta. And the first suggestion, which is number two of the 59, is see everything as a dream. See everything as a dream. Whatever you experience in your life, pain, pleasure, heat, cold, joy, sorrow, see it as something happening in a dream. Although you think things are very solid, like sorrow, you can start to see how they're like a mirage, like bubbles. You still feel the sorrow, but there's less drama. You still feel sadness, but there's less escaping. It's astonishing to see how much like dust things really are. When we have space in our hearts and minds and bodies, when we're settled, things can blow through much more easily. When we're amped up and we're self-righteous and we really uh, uh, and we're overconfident, things don't blow, blow through so well. Things start to feel r- real, like. Like, you see through it, just like I'm looking out the glass, but just like a starling comes in and flies straight into the glass. That's what ends up happening. We think, oh, we're open, but if we're not training, things just hit the glass of our psyche. And we experience them really solidly. Not as fluid. And on closer examination... As this gets refined, you start to see that it's not even clear where now is. The present moment also isn't so solid. What's the present moment? That's just an idea. As soon as I say present moment, it's gone. So you can experience this open, unfixated quality in sitting meditation. I hope everyone felt that today. You're distracted, you're breathing, you're distracted, you're breathing, you're distracted, you're breathing. Whoa, how long is this really 25 minutes? How breathing, distract the fan, breathing, my stomach, oh, I'm going to cough, breathing. And then suddenly, just really quiet. And then distracted again, breathing. (laughs) But we have these glimpses into an unfixated moment of openness. And when you start to really see that openness, then fixed solid states like um, love or hate become more fluid. Love comes and goes. Hate comes and goes. And you start to see that there's nothing solid really happening. And you start to see everything is like a dream. It still matters. It still hurts. But it's also fluid like a dream. Number three, examine the nature of awareness. 
I don't have to say that much about that. But notice how the awareness is very, very stable. Like any time during the day, you can take a deep breath and exhale and just rest in awareness. Just pause and just rest in awareness. Even if it lasts six seconds, like right now, before the habits kick in again. But you can always take a really deep intentional breath and rest in awareness. So let's just remember that we're looking at section two, which is training and empathy. So don't forget that point. We were thinking, oh, I'm trying to train to like get really clear in my mind. No, no, no. We're learning how to train in empathy. And the first thing we need to do is train in the basics, meaning use, <laughs> use what you've got right here. The second thing is to see everything as a dream. And the third uh, point of training is examine the nature of awareness. And the fourth, don't get stuck on peace. <coughs> I love that line. Can't you see that as a bumper sticker? Don't get stuck on peace. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you've gotten to stage four, you're an idealist. And you're going to come into meditation. You're going to come into spiritual practice wanting to feel peaceful. And wanting practice to end with a bell and a bow and peace. And the text is saying, if you want to go deeper in practice and start to really open your awareness, don't get stuck on wanting to feel peaceful. Be careful of that. That's not seeing the fluidity of how life is. That's wanting a result. Now this might be very, very sad for many of you. <laughs> Because we thought, hey, I'm coming to practice to get more peaceful. And the text is saying, no, you have to let, you have to drop that. If you come into practice really wanting something out of the practice, it will obscure the preliminaries. Because what, what are the preliminaries? This. This. This is what we're open to. And if you come into this and go, hey, this isn't the party that I thought I was invited to, I was invited to the peace party. <laughs> and all these people here are suffering, <laughs> suffering meditators. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to the peace party in the pyramid up the hill or whatever. <laughs> but actually what we're practicing is waking up to reality as it is right now. Don't be stuck on peace. And one of the things I like this is it's a reminder to people in community, don't walk around being peaceful. <laughs> like we're practicing peace, but don't walk around faking a version of peace because you think that's what a good yogi is, do, should be. <coughs> that's what a spiritual person is like. They have a big smile and they're peaceful and helpful. No, don't get stuck on that. Can you be peaceful, though? Be peaceful. Yeah. And act peacefully. And train in peace. But don't get stuck on peace. Yeah. Number five. 
This will be the last point before lunch. Oh, sorry, second last point. Um, rest and openness of mind. So this is a little bit different than number three, examine the nature of awareness. So number three is notice how awareness is a natural resource that's always present. We say water is a natural resource, air is a natural resource. Well, you know, awareness is a natural resource. And it can always be found. It can always be found again. Know how to find it and examine it. Know that it's real. And number five, know how to rest in the openness of awareness. Know how to rest in the calmness of the mind. This is not just in sitting meditation. This is beyond formal practice. This is all day. The way I would say this is train in what it feels like to be open. When you feel an openness of the heart, know what that feels like. Remember what that feels like. Acknowledge what that feels like. Let it, in, let it imprint your fascia, your muscles, your bones, your attitude. Just stop throughout the day and take a breath and rest in the openness of mind. The Zen teacher Shunru Suzuki says, Our tendency is to be interested in something that is growing in the garden, not in the soil itself. But if you want to have a good harvest, the most important thing is to make the soil rich and cultivate it very well. We're really focused on the apples. We're really focused on the fruit. But it's really important we focus on the soil. Most of us, when we say we have a spiritual practice, we're referring to the fruit, the cool things that have happened in moments where we felt really connected to someone or we saw some wild thing in nature that it seemed like no one else has ever seen, or there's a meeting of hearts that happens a few times in your life that's so real. These kind of experiences. Insight at a funeral. But that's not spiritual practice. That's just the fruit that happens sometimes. The practice is being really interested in the soil, which is the preliminaries. It's the basics, like being really interested in the basics. And this leads to number six. In post-meditation, be a child of illusion. So there's a few ways to interpret this. One is, in post-meditation, there's no post-meditation. <laughs> That's a ridiculous idea. There's no post-meditation. 
That's just an idea you added when you stood up off your cushion. Oh, this is post-meditation. There's just meditation. Yoga is like this too. Whatever you do with your body, it's a yoga posture. Everything that you do with your body is a yoga posture. You squat, it's a yoga posture. You stand up, it's a yoga posture. You lie down to sleep, it's a yoga posture. And you bring mindfulness to all of these postures. And I've always been very inspired by the way Zen practice makes no distinction between formal and informal practice. Everything is a continuous enso, a continuous circle of the path. That's the meaning of the enso. It continues and continues and has no beginning and no end. The Zen teacher, uh, Norman Fisher, has a really interesting comment about this section in his book called Training in Compassion. He writes, This does not mean that we should ignore the other more difficult side of life and humanity and pretend it doesn't exist. Only we shouldn't let that side... Oh, I don't have the rest of the quote. Only we shouldn't let that side dominate. So be a child of, being a child of illusion means we should have the innocence and naivety to believe that we can be awake and that others can be awake. It doesn't mean pretend that the difficulties of life are not there. It just means innocent enough that we can have beginner's mind. All the time. How many of you know somebody that has a diagnosis? Some kind of medical diagnosis. You don't have to put up your hand because everybody will put up their hand. But that has a medical diagnosis that when they were diagnosed, it really helped you and them understand more about the behavior or the suffering of that person. How many? Almost all of us, right? Somebody is going through a lot of difficulty. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's more psychological or more mental or more emotional. And sometimes you get a diagnosis and it just makes you go, oh, okay. And it allows you to orient towards the symptoms in a way you couldn't before. This is so helpful. The problem is, as time goes on, we start getting a little lazy. And we start believing that that frame is that person. And the problem is, that frame might describe that person in certain situations. But it isn't that person, you see. We've just gotten lazy. And we've believed that that person is or has, right, or suffers from, you fill in the blank. Being a child of illusion means in meditation practice, you're learning how to open up to what's really going on. In relational life, 
That means when you're relating to that person, you can drop that whole diagnosis and actually see who's right in front of you. And the people who have the hardest time doing this are people who are trained in diagnostic categories, which is kind of everybody nowadays because of Google. <laughs> Like when you really look at that person, it's very hard, and you might not think it is until you're actually doing this, but it's very hard, especially if they're triggered, to not be using that category. It's really, really hard to do. And our practice is a child of illusion. We're going to bring the openness of mind to that situation, not knowing. We did the best we could with the diagnosis. We helped them get the meds. We helped them get the social support. We helped them eat right. We've done everything we can. Now there's this human being. How do I love this human being? So remember, this is training and empathy. So I would translate being a child of illusion as beginner's mind, not knowing. I don't know. When you're sitting in meditation, every once in a while I'll say to you, release your tongue. Everybody feel that? When you release your tongue, try it, like really re relax your tongue. You have beginner's mind. That's the tongue of a beginner. That's why people who are really, really dumb, like you know people who are just like so stupid, they are so advanced in practice because they have no idea. They're just like, like just tell me where to go. Okay, bow, okay, sit, okay, clear my mind, okay. And like they just have no preconceptions and they are so advanced at practice. And here all of us who are so clever, we're just like, oh yeah, I'm working on the breath and whatever. But they're just like really open all the time. So I like how section two ends. It like it starts really idealistically, like see everything as a dream. It's kind of esoteric. And then it gets really practical, really rest in the openness of awareness. And then it ends by saying, if you're resting in the openness of awareness, this is incredibly practical because it teaches you how to have don't know mind. Don't know mind. There was a Zen teacher in the 70s in Boston, in Cambridge, named Sung San, Sung San Sunim. And um, he didn't speak English very well. Um, and um, so uh, he used to teach uh, donut mind because he thought that don't know was donut, same thing. So he taught, and all the students were like, they just thought it was like an like a empty in the middle and like really profound, but it was just an English issue. So donut mind. So you should have donut mind. Don't know mind. And that is this child of illusion. Now here is the punchline. 
the punchline is, what the text is implicitly saying is that there seems to be a correlation between not knowing and empathy. There seems to be some kind of relationship between giving up your point of view and empathy. Can you see that? How can we be compassionate for people that we have really strong feelings about? You can't, unless you can give up your point of view. When I used to work as a psychotherapist, I encountered this all the time because I had patients that I didn't like. You're not going to like every single person you work with. And my work was how to find, or there were parts of them I didn't like. How do you bring a compassionate attitude? <coughs> if you're a school teacher in Kelowna, how many kids do you have in a class? 30 kids. Do you, are you going to like 30 kids? Nobody's answering that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you might not like 30 kids, but you can cultivate compassion for every single one of those kids, even if you don't like them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to like someone for empathy to occur. So it seems there's this very interesting teaching here, which is that empathy seems to have more to do with the subjective experience of dropping your point of view than what's really happening between two people. In other words, not much has to come from the other side. Most of the time we think, well, I can be compassionate for them if a little something comes from them. Mm. Or like if they're really suffering way more than me. <laughs> but actually, maybe compassion is much smaller than that. Is it maybe it just emerges when we drop our rigidity around needing to have a view. It doesn't mean you don't have a view, but it means you know how to drop it. Right? I'm taking a navigation course right now, mm -hmm. learning how to read charts. Um, my father-in-law has a small boat, and we wanted to go explore a little bit uh, in the Gulf Islands. And I thought, well, I should learn how to like, navigate. I don't know anything about this. So I'm taking this really great course about how to read, how to read charts. And not like digital GPS kind of thing, but like you know how to map a chart and vectors and things like this. So uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about it is um, the instructor keeps saying, even if you get your vectors all right, Look out the window. <laughs> Look out the window and know where you are. And we practiced last Wednesday night. The whole class was on how to go back and forth between reading a chart, looking at your GPS, and looking out the window. And continuing to move through all three. Some people just get so into the screen. And that's how they're navigating. Some people get so into the chart. And that's how they're navigating. Some people are only looking out there, but you can't see depth and so on. So that's what's being said here. Know 
the diagnosis, to use, keep using that example, know it, learn more about it. It's, they're always changing. Learn as much as you can and know how to drop it. Know how to drop it. If we were in Alcoholics Anonymous, this would be the 13th step, <laughs> right? The 12th step, you're still an alcoholic. The 13th step, I don't know who I am. Don't tell any Alcoholics Anonymous this 13th step. So, um, we have just a couple minutes. Um, this afternoon we're going to have more discussion, but I just really wanted to kind of pack in the, the teachings this morning. Anything burning or any questions or comments anybody wants to make before lunchtime? Yes. Uh, and can you say your names just so I keep remembering? Carrie. Okay. Um, so do I understand that uh, number six, it's like letting go, looking at a person or a situation or a preconceived idea yeah. and letting go of whether you think it's good or bad or right or wrong yeah. or letting, letting go of judgment mm -hmm. and just saying, I actually don't really know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah. I don't know if this situation or that person is right or wrong. I don't know if I'm uh, letting go of your preconceived judgments. Yeah, yeah, like what paralyzes people a lot. Feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. What paralyzes people a lot is they have to make a decision and they don't know what decision to make. So they don't do anything. And they just keep ruminating. Mm -hmm. Should I stay or should I go? city or the country, right? Um, not knowing is the antidote, which is, I don't know. I don't know. And, just be okay with that. and then you try something. Yeah. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, and then you try something else. Let's get divorced. Oh, that wasn't so good, let's get back together. <laughs> <laughs> Like, try something. Try something. So not knowing is not, oh, I have no idea. I don't know anything. I just like, whoa. It's not like that. It's like, I don't know, so I'm going to try something. And then I'm going to try something else. And then I'm going to try something else. Or not knowing about a person and so just letting go of the preconceived ideas and just feeling love for them or compassion. Yeah, or... totally. I don't know anything about the stock market, but if you want to test to see if you have a good stockbroker, they would probably have great expertise and give you all kinds of advice, and then they would probably say, and, you know, I really don't know. So let's try this for a little bit, or let's put half the money here for a little bit, and let's just see what happens. If you have a really good surgeon... They should say to you, or you should hear them say, I've done this 70 times. I really feel confident in this. This is how we do it. And I don't know. So we're going to try it. Or we could try this other thing. Do, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, you know, and also you can drop your knowing. So try something. So when you say release the tongue, I was yeah. a place of 
Wow. Okay, well, where am I supposed to put my tongue? <laughs> What's the ideal position? Yeah, here? that's like saying, please just tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> just release your tongue and just see what happens. And is it, when I'm focused on my breath, is it a good idea to focus on, is the tongue released? Like, mm -hmm. is it best to keep mm -hmm. the tongue released? Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. One more comment or question. There was a hand up. Uh, this is just about suffering. Oh, names, names. Tracy. Uh -huh. And that the more I do it, even if outwardly people see tears, the inner experience for me is a sweetness and a healing. And the suffering was avoiding it and being scared to feel mm -hmm. it. Or, or even in a day, my day-to-day, -day, or maybe some of us experience this where we, you know, we want to sit down on our mat, but we'll do just one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, because we yeah. really don't want to feel that stuff. But it's, see, and, and even in my work as a doula, like mm -hmm. in experiencing labor, I see it all the time that we want to avoid mm -hmm. the feeling of that discomfort. And we tell ourselves that it's so awful, and if it's awful, we're not doing it right. But mm -hmm. once we're in it, mm -hmm. and have that compassion for ourselves, yeah. it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Like as a culture, we want to avoid suffering. Yeah. Yet, the rumination creates the more, more of it. Yeah. And the yeah. It, and it's, it's neat to experience a sit in a group, I don't, I don't meditate in a group very often, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I find it really neat. Great. I'm so glad. Well, you know, as a doula, in a way, I mean, this is your job, is um, people are going to suffer, and you're going to keep them in it without escaping. And they're, if you do that, big joy comes. I, uh, I used to go spend a lot of time in Crete, uh, in Greece. Um, and um, in Crete, doulas, which is, I think, where doulas come from, actually. <laughs> but in, in, in Crete, the doulas look after women uh, at birth and at death, and usually in the same family. So the doulas will be with women at birth, and when women are, when women are dying, they're with women at dying. And I talked to a woman who was a doula, and I said, wow, you have to train in, like, birth and in, you know, palliative technique. And she said, no, 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 it's the same technique. Mm -hmm. It's the same technique. You're just really, really present with women. Same practice. And it's interesting because in our culture, the people who are with women, like post-labor, and the people who do palliative work are the lowest paid Healthcare workers, like child care and palliative care, are the lowest paid uh, healthcare workers in the system. It should be the other way around. So, uh, let's end here. Um, in other words, you should have a higher salary. <laughs> um, so, uh, thank you for participating this morning. Um, we'll have.